Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. We're continuing with the conquest of bread today, and thankfully we've rounded out the chapters so we end at a better point this week. Also, apologies about slightly inconsistent weird audio as I record random chunks in different rooms, and I've been getting a little popping on the mic and stuff lately. I'm working on improving the audio in general, so bear with me while it's a little bit funky. But without further delay, let's finish last week's chapter and the next one. Chapter 13. The Collectivist Wages System, Section 4. The collectivists say, to each according to his deeds, or, in other terms, according to his share of services rendered to society. They think it expedient to put this principle into practice as soon as the social revolution will have made all instruments of production common property. We think that if the social revolution had the misfortune of proclaiming such a principle, it would mean its necessary failure. It would mean leaving the social problem, which past centuries have burdened us with, unsolved. Of course, in a society like ours, in which the more a man works, the less he is remunerated, this principle, at first sight, may appear to be a yearning for justice. But in reality, it is only the perpetuation of injustice. It was by proclaiming this principle that wagedom began, to end in the glaring inequalities and all the abominations of present society. Because, from the moment work done began to be appraised in currency, or in any form of wage, the day it was agreed upon that man would only receive the wage he should be able to secure himself, the whole history of a state-aided capitalist society was as good as written. It was contained, in germ, in this principle. Shall we, then, return to our starting point and go through the same evolution again? Our theorists desire it, but fortunately, it is impossible. The revolution, we maintain, must be communist. If not, it will be drowned in blood and have to be begun over again. Services rendered to society, be they work in factory or field or mental services, cannot be valued in money. There can be no exact measure of value, of what has been wrongly termed exchange value, nor of use value in terms of production. If two individuals work for the community five hours a day, year in, year out, at different work, which is equally agreeable to them, we may say that on the whole their labor is approximately equivalent. But we cannot divide their work, and say that the result of any particular day, hour, or minute of work of the one is worth the result of one day, one hour, or one minute of the other. We may roughly say that the man who, during his lifetime, has deprived himself of leisure during 10 hours a day has given more to society than the one who has only deprived himself of leisure during 5 hours a day, or who has not deprived himself at all. But we cannot take what he has done during 2 hours and say that the yield of his 2 hours' work is worth twice as much as the yield of another individual, who has worked only 1 hour, and remunerate the two in proportion. It would be disregarding all that is complex in industry, in agriculture, in the whole life of present society. It would be ignoring to what extent all individual work is the result of the past and the present labor of society as a whole. It would mean believing ourselves to be living in the Stone Age, whereas we are living in an age of steel. If you enter a modern coal mine, 
you will see a man in charge of a huge machine that raises and lowers a cage. In his hand, he holds a lever that stops and reverses the course of the machine. He lowers it and the cage reverses its course in the twinkling of an eye. He sends it upwards or downwards into the depths of the shaft with a giddy swiftness. All attention, he follows with his eyes fixed on an indicator, which shows him, on a small scale, at which point of the shaft the cage is at each second of its progress. And as soon as the indicator has reached a certain level, he suddenly stops the course of the cage, not a yard higher nor lower than the required spot. And no sooner have the colliers unloaded their coal wagonettes and pushed empty ones instead, than he reverses the lever and again sends the cage back into space. During eight or ten consecutive hours every day, he must keep the same strain of attention. Should his brain relax for a moment, the cage would inevitably strike against the gear, break its wheels, snap the rope, crush men, and put a stop to all work in the mine. Should he waste three seconds at each touch of the lever, the extraction in our modern perfected mines would be reduced from 20 to 50 tons a day. Is it he who is the most necessary man in the mine? Or is it perhaps the boy who signals to him from below to raise the cage? Is it the miner at the bottom of the shaft who risks his life every instant and who will someday be killed by fire damp? Or is it the engineer who would lose the layer of coal and would cause the miners to dig on rock by a simple mistake in his calculations? Or is it the mine owner who has put his capital into the mine and who has, perhaps, contrary to expert advice, asserted that excellent coal would be found there? All those who are engaged in the mine contribute to the extraction of coal in proportion to their strength, their energy, their knowledge, their intelligence, and their skill. And we may say that all have the right to live, to satisfy their needs and even their whims, when the necessaries of life have been secured for all. But how can we appraise the work of each one of them? And moreover, is the coal they have extracted entirely their work? Is it not also the work of the men who have built the railway leading to the mine, and the roads that radiate from all the railway stations? Is it not also the work of those that have tilled and sown the fields, extracted iron, cut wood in the forests, built the machines that burn coal, slowly developed the mining industry altogether, and so on? It is utterly impossible to draw a distinction between the work of each of those men. To measure the work by its results leads us to an absurdity. To divide the total work and to measure its fractions by the number of hours spent on the work also leads us to absurdity. One thing remains, to put the needs above the works, and first of all to recognize the right to live, and later on the right to well-being, for all those who took their share in production. But take any other branch of human activity. Take the manifestations of life as a whole. Which one of us can claim the higher remuneration for his work? Is it the doctor who has found out the illness, or the nurse who has brought about recovery by her hygienic care? Is it the inventor of the first steam engine, or the boy who, one day getting tired of pulling the rope that formerly opened the valve to let steam under the piston, without suspecting that he had invented the essential mechanical part of all modern machinery, the automatic valve. Is it the inventor of the locomotive or the workman of Newcastle, 
who suggested replacing the stones formerly laid under rails by wooden sleepers, as the stones, for want of elasticity, caused the trains to derail. Is it the engineer on the locomotive, the signalman who stops the trains, or that lets them pass by, the switchman who transfers a train from one line to another? To whom do we owe the transatlantic cable? Is it to the electrical engineer who obstinately affirmed that the cable would transmit messages while learned men of science declared it to be impossible? Is it to Mary, the learned physical geographer, who advised that thick cables should be set aside for others as thin as a walking cane? Or else to those volunteers, came from nobody knows where, who spent their days and nights on deck minutely examining every yard of the cable and removed the nails that the shareholders of steamship companies stupidly caused to be driven into the non-conducting wrapper of the cable so as to make it unserviceable. And in a wider sphere, the true sphere of life, with its joys, its sufferings, and its accidents, cannot each one of us recall someone who has rendered him so great a service that we should be indignant if its equivalent in coin were mentioned. The service may have been but a word, nothing but a word spoken at the right time, or else it may have been months and years of devotion, and we are going to appraise these incalculable services in labor notes? The works of each! But human society would not exist for more than two consecutive generations if everyone did not give infinitely more than that for which he is paid in coin, in checks, or in civic rewards. The race would soon become extinct if mothers did not sacrifice their lives to take care of their children, if men did not give continually, without demanding an equivalent reward, if men did not give most precisely when they expect no reward. If middle-class society is decaying, if we have got into a blind alley from which we cannot emerge without attacking past institutions with torch and hatchet, it is precisely because we have given too much to counting. It is because we have let ourselves be influenced into giving only to receive. It is because we have aimed at turning society into a commercial company based on debit and credit. After all, the collectivists know this themselves. They vaguely understand that a society could not exist if it carried out the principle of each according to his deeds. They have a notion that necessaries, we do not speak of whims, the needs of the individual do not always correspond to his works. Thus, de Peup tells us, quote, The principle, the eminently individualist principle, would, however, be tempered by social intervention for the education of children and young persons, including maintenance and lodging, and by the social organization for assisting the infirm and the sick, for retreats for aged workers, etc. End quote. They understand that a man of 40, father of three children, has other needs than a young man of 20. They know that the woman who suckles her infant and spends sleepless nights at its bedside cannot do as much work as the man who has slept peacefully. They seem to take in that men and women, worn out maybe by dint of overwork for society, may be incapable of doing as much work as those who have spent their time leisurely and pocketed their labor notes in the privileged career of state functionaries. They are eager to temper their principle. They say, quote, Society will not fail to maintain and bring up its children, to help both aged and infirm. Without doubt, 
needs will be the measure of the cost that society will burden itself with to temper the principle of deeds. End quote. Charity, charity, always Christian charity, organized by the state this time. They believe in improving the asylums for foundlings, in affecting old age and sick insurances, so as to temper their principle. But they cannot yet throw aside the idea of wounding first and healing afterwards. Thus, after having denied communism, after having laughed at their ease at the formula to each according to his needs, these great economists discover that they have forgotten something, the needs of the producers, which they now admit. Only it is for the state to estimate them, for the state to verify if the needs are not disproportionate to the work. The state will dole out charity. Thence to the English poor law and the workhouse, there is but a slight difference, because even this stepmother of a society against whom we are in revolt has also been compelled to temper her individualist principles. She, too, has had to make concessions in a communist direction and under the same form of charity. She, too, distributes half-penny dinners to prevent the pillaging of her shops, builds hospitals, often very bad ones, but sometimes splendid ones, to prevent the ravages of contagious diseases. She, too, after having paid the hours of labor, shelters the children of those she has wrecked. She takes their needs into consideration and doles out charity. Poverty, we have said elsewhere, was the primary cause of wealth. It was poverty that created the first capitalist. Because, before accumulating surplus value, of which we hear so much, men had to be sufficiently destitute to consent to sell their labor, so as not to die of hunger. It was poverty that made capitalists. And if the number of the poor increased so rapidly during the Middle Ages, it was due to the invasions and wars that followed the founding of states, and to the increase of riches resulting from the exploitation of the East. These two causes tore asunder the bonds that kept men together in agrarian and urban communities, and taught them to proclaim the principle of wages, so dear to the exploiters, instead of the solidarity they formerly practiced in their tribal life. And it is this principle that is to spring from a revolution, which men dare to call by the name of social revolution, a name so dear to the starved, the oppressed, and the sufferers. It can never be, for the day on which old institutions will fall under the proletarian axe, voices will cry out, bread, shelter, ease for all, and those voices will be listened to. The people will say, quote, let us begin by allaying our thirst for life for happiness, for liberty, that we have never quenched. And when we shall have tasted of this joy, we will set to work to demolish the last vestiges of middle-class rule, its morality drawn from account books, its debit and credit philosophy, its mine and yours institutions. In demolishing we shall build, as Proudhon said, and we shall build in the name of communism and anarchy. End quote. Chapter 14 Consumption and Production Section 1 Looking at society and its political organization from a different standpoint than that of all the authoritarian schools, for we start from a free individual to reach a free society, instead of beginning by the state to come down to the individual, we follow the same method in economic questions. We study the needs of the individuals and the means by which they satisfy them, before discussing production, exchange, taxation, government, 
and so on. At first sight, the difference may appear trifling, but in reality it upsets all the canons of official political economy. If you open the works of any economist, you'll find that he begins with production, i.e., by the analysis of the means employed nowadays for the creation of wealth, division of labor, the factory, its machinery, the accumulation of capital. From Adam Smith to Marx, all have proceeded along these lines. Only in the latter parts of their books do they treat of consumption, that is to say, of the means resorted to in our present society to satisfy the needs of the individuals. And even there, they confine themselves to explaining how riches are divided among those who vie with one another for their possession. Perhaps you will say this is logical. Before satisfying needs, you must create the wherewithal to satisfy them. But, before producing anything, must you not feel the need of it? Was it not necessity that first drove man to hunt, to raise cattle, to cultivate land, to make implements, and later on to invent machinery? Is it not the study of the needs that should govern production? To say the least, it would therefore be quite as logical to begin by considering the needs, and afterwards to discuss how production is and ought to be organized in order to satisfy these needs. This is precisely what we mean to do. But as soon as we look at political economy from this point of view, it entirely changes its aspect. It ceases to be a simple description of facts and becomes a science. And we may define this science as the study of the needs of mankind and the means of satisfying them with the least possible waste of human energy. Its true name should be physiology of society. It constitutes a parallel science to the physiology of plants and animals, which is the study of the needs of plants and animals, and of the most advantageous ways of satisfying them. In the series of sociological sciences, the economy of human societies takes the place, occupied in the series of biological sciences, by the physiology of organic bodies. We say, here are human beings, united in a society. All of them feel the need of living in healthy houses. The savage's hut no longer satisfies them. They require a more or less comfortable solid shelter. The question is, then, whether, taking the present capacity of men for production, every man can have a house of his own, and what is hindering him from having it? As soon as we ask this question, we see that every family in Europe could perfectly well have a comfortable house, such as are built in England, in Belgium, or in Pullman City, or else an equivalent set of rooms. A certain number of days' work would suffice to build a pretty little airy house, well fitted up and lighted by electricity. But nine-tenths of Europeans have never possessed a healthy house, because at all times common people have had to work day after day to satisfy the needs of their rulers, and have never had the necessary leisure or money to build, or to have built, the home of their dreams. And they can have no houses, and will inhabit hovels as long as present conditions remain unchanged. It is thus seen that our method is quite contrary to that of the economists, who immortalize the so-called laws of production, and reckoning up the number of houses built every year, demonstrate by statistics that as the number of the new-built houses is too small to meet all demands, nine-tenths of Europeans must live in hovels. Let us pass on to food. After having enumerated the benefits accruing from the division of labor, economists tell us the division of labor requires that some men should work at agriculture and others at manufacture. 
farmers producing so much, factories producing so much, exchange being carried on in such a way. They analyze the sale, the profit, the net gain or the surplus value, the wages, the taxes, banking, and so on. But after having followed them so far, we are none the wiser, and if we ask them, how is it that millions of human beings are in want of bread, when every family could grow sufficient wheat to feed 10, 20, or even 100 people annually? They answer us by droning the same anthem. Division of labor, wages, surplus value, capital, etc. Arriving at the same conclusion, that production is insufficient to satisfy all needs. A conclusion which, if true, does not answer the question, can or cannot man by his labor produce the bread he needs? And if he cannot, what is it that hinders him? Here are 350 million Europeans. They need so much bread, so much meat, wine, milk, eggs, and butter every year. They need so many houses, so much clothing. This is the minimum of their needs. Can they produce all this? And if they can, will sufficient leisure be left them for art, science, and amusement? In a word, for everything that is not comprised in the category of absolute necessities? If the answer is in the affirmative, what hinders them going ahead? What must they do to remove the obstacles? Is it time that is needed to achieve such a result? Let them take it. But let us not lose sight of the aim of production, the satisfaction of the needs of all. If the most imperious needs of man remain unsatisfied now, what must we do to increase the productivity of our work? But is there no other cause? Might it not be that production, having lost sight of the needs of man, has strayed in an absolutely wrong direction, and that its organization is at fault? And as we can prove that such is the case, let us see how to reorganize production so as to really satisfy all needs. This seems to us the only right way of facing things, the only way that would allow of political economy becoming a science, the science of social physiology. It is evident that so long as science treats of production, as it is carried on at present by civilized nations, by Hindu communes, or by savages, it can hardly state facts other than the economists state them now, that is to say, as a simple descriptive chapter analogous to the descriptive chapters of zoology and botany. But if this chapter were written so as to throw some light on the economy of the energy that is necessary to satisfy human needs, the chapter would gain in precision as well as in descriptive value. It would clearly show the frightful waste of human energy under the present system, and it would prove that as long as the system exists, the needs of humanity will never be satisfied. The point of view we see would be entirely changed. Behind the loom that weaves so many yards of cloth, behind the steel plate perforator, and behind the safe in which dividends are hoarded, we should see man, the artisan of production, more often than not excluded from the feast he has prepared for others. We should also understand that the standpoint being wrong, the so-called laws of value and exchange, are but a very false explanation of events, as they happen nowadays and that things will come to pass very differently when production is organized in such a manner as to meet all needs of society. Section 2. There is not one single principle of political economy that does not change its aspect if you look at it from our point of view. Take, for instance, overproduction, a word which every day re-echoes in our ears. Is there a single economist, academic, or candidate for academical honors 
who has not supported arguments proving that economic crises are due to overproduction, that at a given moment more cotton, more cloth, more watches are produced than needed. Have we not, all of us, thundered against the rapacity of the capitalists who are obstinately bent on producing more than can possibly be consumed? However, on careful examination, all these reasonings prove unsound. In fact, is there one single commodity among those in universal use which is produced in greater quantity than need be? Examine one by one all commodities sent out by countries exporting on a large scale, and you will see that nearly all are produced in insufficient quantities for the inhabitants of the countries exporting them. It is not a surplus of wheat that the Russian peasant sends to Europe. The most plentiful harvests of wheat and rye in European Russia only yield enough for the population, and as a rule, the peasant deprives himself of what he actually needs when he sells his wheat or rye to pay rent and taxes. It is not a surplus of coal that England sends to the four corners of the globe, because only three quarters of a ton, per head of population, annually, remains for home domestic consumption, and millions of Englishmen are deprived of fire in the winter, or have only just enough to boil a few vegetables. In fact, setting aside useless luxuries, there is in England, which exports more than any other country, one single commodity in universal use, cottons, whose production is sufficiently great to perhaps exceed the needs of the community. Yet, when we look upon the rags that pass for wearing apparel worn by over a third of the inhabitants of the United Kingdom, we are led to ask ourselves whether the cottons exported would not, on the whole, suit the real needs of the population. As a rule, it is not a surplus that is exported, though it may have been so originally. The fable of the barefooted shoemaker is as true of nations as it was formerly of individual artisans. We export the necessary commodities, and we do so because the workmen cannot buy with their wages what they have produced, and pay besides the rent and interest to the capitalist and the banker. Not only does the ever-growing need of comfort remain unsatisfied, but the strict necessities of life are often wanting. Therefore, surplus production does not exist, at least not in the sense given to it by the theorists of political economy. Taking another point, all economists tell us that there is a well-proved law. Man produces more than he consumes. After he has lived on the proceeds of his toil, there remains a surplus. Thus, a family of cultivators produces enough to feed several families, and so forth. For us, this oft-repeated sentence has no sense. If it meant that each generation leaves something to future generations, it would be true. Thus, for example, a farmer plants a tree that will live, maybe, for 30, 40, or 100 years, and whose fruits will still be gathered by the farmer's grandchildren or he clears a few acres of virgin soil, and we say that the heritage of future generations has been increased by that much. Roads, bridges, canals, his house and his furniture are so much wealth bequeathed to succeeding generations. But this is not what is meant. We are told that the cultivator produces more than he need consume. Rather, should they say that the state having always taken from him a large share of his produce for taxes, the priest for tithe, and the landlord for rent, a whole class of men has been created, who formerly consumed what they produced. 
save what was set aside for unforeseen accidents, or expenses incurred in afforestation, roads, etc. But who today are compelled to live very poorly, from hand to mouth, the remainder having been taken from them, by the state, the landlord, the priest, and the usurer. Therefore, we prefer to say, the agricultural labourer, the industrial worker, and so on, consume less than they produce, because they are compelled to sell most of the produce of their labour, and to be satisfied with but a small portion of it. Let us also observe that if the needs of the individual are taken as the starting point of our political economy, we cannot fail to reach communism, an organisation which enables us to satisfy all needs in the most thorough and economical way. While if we start from our present method of production, and aim at gain and surplus value, without asking whether our production corresponds to the satisfaction of needs, we necessarily arrive at capitalism, or at most at collectivism, both being but two different forms of the present wage system. In fact, when we consider the needs of the individual and of society, and the means which man has resorted to in order to satisfy them during his varied phases of development, we see at once the necessity of systematizing our efforts, instead of producing haphazard as we do nowadays. It becomes evident that the appropriation by a few of all riches not consumed and transmitted from one generation to another is not in the general interest. And we see as a fact that owing to these methods, the needs of three quarters of society are not satisfied, so that the present waste of human strength in useless things is only the more criminal. We discover, moreover, that the most advantageous use of all commodities would be, for each of them, to go, first for satisfying those needs which are the most pressing, that, in other words, the so-called value in use of a commodity does not depend on a simple whim, as has often been affirmed, but on the satisfaction it brings to real needs. Communism, that is to say, an organization which would correspond to a view of consumption, production, and exchange, taken as a whole, therefore becomes the logical consequence of such a comprehension of things, the only one, in our opinion, that is really scientific. A society that will satisfy the needs of all, and which will know how to organize production to answer to this aim, will also have to make a clean sweep of several prejudices concerning industry, and first of all, the theory often preached by economists, the division of labor theory, which we are going to discuss in the next chapter. And that concludes our reading for this week. We're now approaching the end of the book, and it's been quite a long ride. I think approaching the end of the book actually means we have another three episodes of reading depending, but definitely another episode because I just started taking notes of thoughts I had on this book and it turns out I should have been saying things all along because I just have a lot that I'm going to say near the end. If you have any thoughts or if you have any suggestions for writing about either The Conquest of Bread specifically or Anarchy broadly, especially in a more modern context that reckons with some of the things this book leaves out, I would be very interested to hear from you if you wanted to email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. I'm planning on doing some post-Conquest of Bread readings, something short, similar to what I did with Lenin's Imperialism, 
to add a bit more to the discussion after this book, but I myself will probably read a lot more around that anyway, so I would definitely like to take any kind of recommendations people would have. As always, this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. If you go to abnormalmapping.com, you can find lots of other podcasts about books, video games, anime, movies. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his music on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.